I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Wiradjuri Nation. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. I'm always guilty of getting a bit carried away. I reckon that's one of the biggest challenges for a small winery um, is just trying to stay true to your narrative and, and your ethos. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Nick Spencer has been making wine for over 20 years. He is an extremely proud Australian winemaker who champions multiple regions throughout New South Wales. Nick's passion for Gundagai and Tumbarumba has reinvigorated the excitement around these special places, and his dedication to the entire wine industry is something to be commended. Mr. Nick Spencer, thanks for joining me. <laughs> I need to copy that um, bio and pop it up on my website because mine's a little <laughs> bit outdated. That sounds a lot better than my one. How are you? I'm really, really well. How the bloody hell are you? It's been a while since we've caught up. Very well. I know it's been a long time. I'm I'm in freezing cold Sydney at the moment, and it's bloody windy, as it must be down with you. Um, but it's funny. I, I feel pathetic because I'm I've sort of spent vast majority of my time in Canberra, and now I say I'm freezing in Sydney, and it's probably 15 degrees and <laughs> just mild. But I'm cold. It's all relative, though, isn't it? You kind of you acclimatise to wherever you are. Yeah, I, I I lived in um in Ottawa, um in Canada, for three years, and that that got down to minus twenty or minus thirty with wind chill, and was seriously cold. But I never felt cold. Whereas I reckon the two pl- coldest places I've lived are Sydney and Canberra. In that in Sydney, the houses just aren't set up for cold weather. Mm. Um, you you kind of feel like you're living in tents in all the houses, and um and then in Canberra, it's just just not cold enough to um, to have to go out and wear gloves and beanies and big winter jackets all the time. It's just sort of, you know, it's that it's not freezing, freezing cold. So you're sort of not completely geared up for it. Totally. You tend to kind of think, oh, it's only going to be for a couple of weeks. Is it worth getting ducted air conditioning or is it worth getting a fireplace? And yeah, so we kind of just whinge about it when it happens, but don't really do anything about it. Precisely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad you made the time and hopefully you can keep warm. But um, let's start at the beginning and let's hear all about young Nick Spencer and how he's found his way into the world of wine. I uh, how did I how did I, I had a really sort of unceremonious entry into the wine industry in that parents weren't involved in the wine industry. There's no history at all in in the family um, to wine aside from drinking it. Um, and um, and I, I was interested in chemistry and agriculture and biology as subjects at school and those are the subjects that I did reasonably well in and I was trying to think of a um uh um something to study at university because I back then you kind of you either went straight to uni I don't know what the students do now but you either went straight to uni or you went on a gap year to the UK and I was I just wanted to go and, and get my four years of uni done and dusted so I was trying to work out what I should study at uni and mum, who was a um, a chef, um, sort of suggested, 
why don't you study winemaking? I thought, oh, that sounds fun and romantic and easy and it kind of ticks all the chemistry and science and agricultural boxes. And um, and so I just decided to enrol in winemaking down in Enology, it was called, down in, in Adelaide. And the rest is history. I, I didn't drink much wine at all um, when I was young. I mean, we, we had wine at the dinner table all the time, but it was by no means, and I'm sure my parents won't ever listen to this but it was by no means good quality wine like they had um they had or they always had a four liter cask of um white wine in the fridge and a four liter cask of morris pressings in the um in the pantry and that was mostly what they drank when when we were growing up um so wine wasn't really a big part of um a, apart from just really loving food and you know drinking wine at the dinner table it wasn't really a part of um, our family, and um, and so I just I studied and I kind of fell in love with it um, at the time as I was studying and um, and I, I went to uni with some really great um, people as well. Like I noticed you um, you interviewed Jules Ashmead. Um, a couple of weeks ago, and I, I went to uni with her and um, and a whole bunch of like Anton von Klopper and Dan Shaw, who's now up in Orange at Philip Shaw Wines or Shaw Wines. Um, all these great guys, um, and had a ball of a time, and kind of just fell in love with wine. Then, um, mm. so it wasn't there, there wasn't a kind of traditional entry into the wine industry for me. Yeah. I love that though, because I think, you know, we hear lots of different stories about some people that were born into, you know, generations and generations of winemaking. And, but it is so accessible for anybody that wants to get involved and is curious about it anyway. So good on you for like, well, and your mum for saying, maybe study this. It's amazing that that was exactly the right path for you. And so great that, um, you know, you have some of those connections still. I mean, often the people we meet at uni are the people that we kind of keep long friendships with over time because it's so fundamentally changing, I think, those years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you left uni, where did you head off to then? Well, I went um, – I came back to Canberra after uni and um, and started working at a winery called Mature Wines, which is out at Lake George, which is now what is Lake George Winery. Um, and I was there for a little while, and then I lined up a job to um, to go and work at Verve Clicquot for a vintage, and I was about to jump on a plane and go over there, and then that job fell through for some reason. I can't entirely remember the circumstances, but that job fell through, and so I was trying to look for something to do overseas, and a mate of a mate knew a mate of a mate who knew someone in that was in France that was consulting to wine companies in Georgia and Eastern Europe and I sent him an email or I think it was an email, maybe it was letters way back then, <laughs> maybe emails didn't exist. It must have been at the very beginning of emails. And anyway, long story short, I ended up um, lining up a job as a, for want of a better description, a consultant winemaker in Georgia. So I jumped on the plane. I kind of I asked my old man whether he knew anything about the region and whether it was safe or because at the time it wasn't this is 15 odd years ago now maybe 20 years ago at the time it wasn't the safest place to go and there were 
lots of foreigners getting kidnapped in Georgia and around the region. And, um, and so I wasn't sure what I was getting myself into, but just jumped on a plane and um, flew to Tbilisi and, um, and started working with these, this amazing family that owned this um, winery, big winery in, um, in Georgia. And, um, and then for the next three or four years, I think I, I just, I spent um, time in Canberra working at Maju Wines and then, um, and then the balance of my time, I'd go across to Georgia about four times a year. Um, so that was, that was an incredible experience. And interesting now that at, at the time when I went over there, my role was to modernise um, the wines and the wine styles because um, they were trying to export more wines to Western Europe and to Asia and, um, you know, their styles of wines weren't really in sync with what was happening in other parts of the world. And so my role was to modernise the wines. And then ironically now <laughs> they've become popular, um, but popular with their traditional styles of wine. So it's been fascinating to watch Georgia as a country um, in the last, uh, you know, especially in the last three or four years. Absolutely. I mean, one of the oldest wine regions of the world and amazing that, like you said, you've been able to follow its progression and, and how it's it's changed over time. Uh, did you take anything away from kind of what you saw over there in terms of winemaking that they were doing differently or was it just more about you educating them on the more modern techniques of, of winemaking? There's nothing, there's nothing really um, wine technique-wise that I learnt over there or um, but the one thing that I did learn and, and um, that I reflect on quite a bit is they, their traditional styles of wines are skin contact white wines and, and um, they're pretty rustic um, red wines, but um, the, in particular their skin contact white wines that are made from Cazzatelli, which is a pretty phenolic grape variety. But they, they were – when you taste these wines out of context, they are really – tough wines because they're very, very phenolic. They're grippy. They're orange. Um, they don't have an enormous amount of aromatics. They're just these brutal tannic white wines. And um, But in the context of where they're drunk in Georgia, in the little villages and towns um, and the food that you drink uh, – those wines with, they are the most amazing wines and you couldn't possibly imagine drinking anything else apart from their local cha-cha or vodka that, that they call it cha-cha. But, um, so all the cuisine over there was like salty cheese, really, really ripe um, tomatoes that actually tasted like tomatoes and Spanish onions and barbecued meats that have lots of salt on them and, and are really charry and smoky. And so if you can imagine, and then the sauces were like fermented pomegranate sauces. And so you can imagine bitter, salty, lots of flavor. And the only wine that you could ever possibly imagine drinking that with is those really tannic um, skin contact, traditional white wines that they produced. And, that if I reflect on that, I think you know, it, especially now with um, with the proliferation of um, natural wines, if that's what you want to call them, or minimal intervention wines, or how, however you kind of 
frame them. Um, I think a lot of those wines are ideally drunk in the towns and villages that they're made. And sometimes we take those wines out of context and we don't drink them. You know, sometimes consumers don't understand those styles of wines because they're not really drinking them in the context in which they were made and with the cuisine in which they were made. So that was the main thing that I took away from there was that it's really important um, to consider um, your environment when you're making wine. And I, I, don't, I don't mean climatically. I mean, you know, what what's everyone eating? What's the cuisine um, where you're making wines and, and try and sort of produce wines that reflect that a little bit more? Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, it really does. And I think that, like you said, we often look at wines under a microscope fluorescent lighting, dissect it and pull it apart. And we're actually forgetting the main factors, which is life and enjoyment and company and all these other parts that really go into the experience of drinking wine. So uh, I think you've, you've, you know, highlighted that really well. And, and it is something that we should um, take into consideration when we're thinking about wine. You you worked at Eden Road Wines for uh, over 10 years, I think. You led the team there. If you could sum up the experience of of Eden Road, what was your main takeaways from that experience? Amazing, amazing experience, and we we um, we had a very lucky kickstart to that brand when we won the Jimmy Watson in two thousand and nine. So that was the first vintage that we produced wine from, and I, so that so I was asked. Um, um, again, a mate of a mate said, um, do you want to get involved in this wine company that I'm starting? We just want to make – the aim is to make the best Chardonnay in the country. And I just went, right, I signed me up. And I was living in Sydney at the time. And um, I had to then um, go to Sarah, who was my partner and now wife, but partner at the time, and say, do you want to move back to Canberra um, to – because I, I got offered this job to work at this place, which wasn't called Eden Road at the time. Um, but I, I was just hooked because the, the mission was to make great Chardonnay out of Tumbrumber, and I'd fallen in love with Tumbrumber beforehand. And Anyway, so we moved down to Canberra. I managed to convince Sarah to move to Cam- back to Canberra um, and, um, and then was involved in with Eden Road and we, we won the Jimmy Watson in the first vintage. So that was – I had no idea what the Jimmy Watson was or what its impact may be, but it kind of was great because it just put the brand on the map and then it just opened doors or, you know, gave, gave um, people in the industry the confidence that the brand was um, of some significance um, and then we just uh, – for the next 10 years just had this great ride of making great wines and exploring new regions in New South Wales like Gundagai. We, we started making wines out of Gundagai in 2010 was the first vintage, or 2009, 2010, I think. Um, and that was, a, for me, the start of a, um, you know, falling in love with Gundagai as a wine region. Um, and then... 10 years down the track, left Eden Road to start a brand kind of based around that wine region because I thought it was such a untapped and exciting region. Um, but 
Eden Road was fantastic because um, we had a great group of people working there. And if I look at where they all are now, like, you know, um, Annabelle Holland's up in um, at First Creek and um, uh, Hamish Young, who I'm sure you're aware of, has started his own brand, Matter Wines, out of Canberra. And uh, so we, we had a great crew of people working there. And we also were just – we had owners that kind of just allowed us to do – whatever we wanted and that was I think that that was a great thing about winning the Jimmy Watson was I think the um the people that own the company thought oh these guys must know what they're doing so so it allowed us to kind of do whatever we wanted for 10 years in in a winemaking respect um so that was amazing and and um we kind of just we uh ended up on a vineyard near Clonakiller in Murrum Bateman towards the end um, but we had um, lots of vineyard, lots of growers in Tumbrumba and Gundagai and Hilltop. So it was just, it was my kind of um, entry into exploring New South Wales as a wine region. It's so funny that you just, I didn't realise it was the first vintage that you did um, at Eden Road. And uh, just for everyone listening, if you go onto YouTube and you type in Jimmy Watson, Nick Spencer, um, trophy in 2009. You can see this baby-faced, very candid Nick winning the award. It is such a good little video. I cracked up when I saw it. Um, <laughs> but it makes sense now. I mean, how sh- incredible, like you just popped, you know, popped your heart and soul into something and then you get and for everyone, you know, the Jimmy Watson Memorial Trophy is probably one of the mo- if not the most prestigious and sought after wine award in Australia. And to win that off the bat, like how incredible. That's just amazing. And I mean, now you just need to f- R- ridiculous. You need but- to follow it up, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to legitimize it. It was ridiculous. It was amazing, but um we were right place right time in that there was a trend kind of happening in the industry um, driven by you guys, the sommeliers in the trade and through wine shows and to a style of wine that was, um, you know, spicier and more savoury and more fruit forward. And um, so traditionally that trophy, um, if you look at past winners, um, quite often went to big, powerful South Australian wines. Um, and then from 2009 onwards, it sort of swung the other way where it was cool climate Shiraz's, Pinot Noir's, Grenache, um, a, a claret um, Cabernet blend from um, WA. So really, like, we were the start of um, an, an, an inevitable trend towards what we're all drinking now. So it was really, I mean, it was a, it was great to win it, but it was we were we were pretty lucky that we just happened to produce a spicy, red fruited style of Shiraz that um, happened to appeal to all the judges um, on that day. Uh, I don't think you need to talk it down. I think you very much deserve to win it. And uh, but like you said, it, there we have seen a change in in what people want to drink, but also our appreciation for just different styles of wine. And and you're right, you know, then. Pinot Noir went on to win it and Grenache and and who knows what will be next and that's what's so exciting. You know, the Jimmy Watson has kept um, legitimate and current over the years, which I think is fantastic. So let's talk about um, Nick Spencer Wines. In 2017, you launched your own label. From the offset, what were your aims of the brand and, and have they changed over the years? 
Yeah, they have. I just wanted the the initial aim was just to produce a couple of red wines, and it and it. Um, I was influenced by uh, my week at the Len Evans tutorial back in 2011 when and, and um, everyone that I speak to has this same experience where, well, most people I speak to, you get to taste the greatest wines in the world, um, but most people come away from that week going, bloody hell, we made some amazing wines back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and we make amazing wines now. But my point is, I reckon we were making, Australia was making the greatest wines in the world. And, you you know, you had the opportunity to compare them to um, the greatest wines from Burgundy and Bordeaux in particular. Um, and so we were tasting all these amazing clarets out of the, you know, from the 60s. Um, and I thought, why why are we not producing these styles of wines anymore? We seem to have become obsessed with single varietal wines. And um, I, I love the idea that we drunk and labelled our wines according to a style back then, and we weren't so fussed about what varieties they were. It was just, you know, we, we produced clarets, um, which were medium-bodied styles of wine, and then we produced... Burgundies, which were light-bodied styles of wines, and they were usually Shiraz or Shiraz Cabernet blends in the case of um, Clarets. But I really liked that idea that um, the variety that wasn't um, the most important part, it was the style of the wine. So after, um, after that experience, I kind of, you know, that stewed in my head for a long time, and I thought I'd really like to start a brand that just um, – pays homage to those old Aussie clarets and burgundy. So I, I, um, the initial idea was just to um, produce a medium-bodied red blend and a light-bodied red blend. And then I um, always had to do a Chardonnay because I love Chardonnay and, and um, had a lot of experience and history with Tumbarumba. So it was just going to be those three wines and then someone called me up and offered me some Grenavelt later and that sounded interesting. And then the the rest is just history in that um, I now produce Rosé and Pinot Gris and a Pet Nat and a Preservative Free Shiraz and um, you just kind of evolve um, over time. But the original idea was just a Chardonnay and two reds. I, I remember when you first came onto the scene and, and that story really resonated with me. And I think, you know, it is about kind of where we've been and where we go to. And, and I love the light dry red and the medium dry red for anything but the simple fact that they're just delicious wines. And it's not so important about the makeup, but really about how the wines drink and the conversation that they um, invoke when you're drinking them with, you know, people around you. Um, and I think that it's fantastic that you've kept that. But your brand has grown exponentially in the last few years, and it's just been such a pleasure to watch. How do you stay connected to the roots and kind of keep that essence and feeling but continue to grow um, and add different varietals. I mean, is is there a right way or a wrong way to do it? Is there too much growth that you think that the could be dangerous that you then lose that kind of boutique operation feeling? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I reckon um, I, I always, I always in the back of my mind channel um, brands like Shaw and Smith um, when I'm thinking of the next move and the next move. 
with my brand because you, you look at brands like Shaw and Smith and they, they were so disciplined about their branding and the wines that they made and they just did it for such a long period of time. They still do, obviously. Um, but I, I, I channel brands like that just to, just to make sure, you know, I might think oh, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and you're kind of a kid in a candy shop um, especially when it's your own brand and, and you don't have anyone dictating what you need to do, you can get a little bit carried away and um, you think, oh, I might make this wine and I, I enjoy drinking that wine so I might have a crack at making that wine. It's really, really difficult. Um, and so it, I, I, I try and channel brands like Shaw and Smith in terms of their discipline to a really clear narrative and brand um but sometimes it is really difficult and then you get thrown sort of you know things like the bushfires in 2020 and that has a impact on um the business from a financial point of view and then you've got to think of ways to um get wines back into the market quickly um so that was a kind of genesis for preserve preservative free shiraz and a pet nat was um, I just ran out of wines um, from 2019 and um, come 2021, I needed to get wines in the bottle quickly and back out into the market because um, I had zero wines to sell. So that, you know, so then you start thinking, uh, what, can I, how, what, what wines that I, can I produce that I can get out into the market that are interesting? And um, so you can, you can get a little bit carried away if, that makes sense, um, and and I'm I'm always guilty of getting a bit carried away. I reckon that's one of the biggest challenges for a small winery um, is just trying to stay true to your narrative and um, and your ethos. Mm. I, th I think so. I think it must be a huge challenge. I think you've done it really well, Nick. But, I mean, your phone number's on the website if people want to contact anyone about Nick Spencer Wines. Your name's on the bottles. You also have a young family. You know, what do you, how do you manage um, staying apart? I mean, I imagine everybody that buys your wines kind of wants a piece of you, but you do quite a few dinners around, you know, around the country as well. What's the importance of kind of connecting with the people that are buying your wines? I reckon it's the number one most important thing is um, especially for a young brand and um, like we moved to Sydney for that reason that we were living in Canberra and um, and we thought why not move to Sydney where I was coming up to Sydney every second week doing dinners or tastings or spending time with distributors and um, and we thought why why are we still in Canberra? There's nothing holding us to Canberra. I don't get any fruit from Canberra anymore. And um, so we moved up to Sydney just so we could be in the market and connected to the biggest market in um, in Australia and, and just made life easy, um, you know, when it comes to doing dinners. I mean, for example, I'm doing a dinner tonight and tomorrow night at a restaurant in Crow's Nest and then another dinner down towards you in, um, in Thrall, next week and it just when we're in Canberra that was me traveling the whole time and then add wine shows on to that and it became very very difficult so we moved to Sydney as a as a um, method of trying to sort of be in the trade um, because 
I don't make a huge amount of wine. I only make about 7,000 cases. It's not, it's not a big, big production. Um, and, um, and I, I think, um, you know, the big challenge is selling the wine and, and staying connected to consumers. And I don't have a cellar door, so it's, it's my only way of getting in front of people is um, hosting dinners or doing tastings or we've got a street festival coming up in Chippendale on the weekend as well. So it's just it's my only way of getting in front of um, consumers. Mm. I think it's important because... You're a huge part of your brand. You make great wine, but it's also your personality that people want to connect with. And I think that that is sometimes um, something that's missed, I think, in the industry. I know that I've, you know, served your wines um, to people at Key and, and, you know, they've said, oh, my gosh, we love his wines. We go to his dinners. And we had a real talking point for, for you know, of what they meant to people and we connected over that. The same The same goes for people that just recognize your labels and say, oh, that's a gilded gold wine. Yep, I know that, and that's fantastic. So I think it's great that, I mean, it must be taxing, but I still think it's fantastic that you're that you're out there and you're meeting people because it really means something to them and, and they, they'll probably stay loyal to, to you because of it. Yeah. I, th- I think also wine is can be a little bit intimidating and anything that anyone can do in the industry to demystify wine um, is really valuable and that's kind of you know the, th- the theme w- when I get up and talk about my wines and wine in, in general is just trying to demystify it because geez it's um it's a pompous industry and um, we I, I think sometimes we, we, um, we think it's um, greater than it actually is like it's just a drink and people should be able to consumers should be able to understand it without feeling intimidated and um, and it's a so yeah. I th- that's kind of the way I approach things when when I talk about wine to consumers. Absolutely. I mean, you know, do you like it? Do you want to drink it? You know that that is really essentially the most important part. You know, all the jargon that goes with it. Can you're right? It can get. Um, you know, it might be interesting to some people, but it certainly isn't to a lot. So. <laughs> Yeah, and one of the things back to talking about drinking according to a style and and blends and um, I think that's really if if you um, if you as a consumer have uh, open minded about um, what styles of wines you like to drink, then you open the book to what wines you can drink as opposed. To, I I hear so many people just say I just drink Pinot Noir. Or I just drink Shiraz, and I wonder, like for the Pinot Noir drinkers, do you enjoy light red wines? Is that what appeals to you about Pinot Noir? Because if it is, there's another ten varieties and another twenty odd blends um, that you could drink that aren't Pinot Noir. And you, whereas if you just if you're obsessed or focused on a variety, it just kind of stops you from trying other great things. Yeah, and and these days, I mean, we're spoiled for choice. So if we stay with one variety, yes, there's a plethora of brands and different styles out there. But um, I think that, yeah, sometimes it's just about trying different wines, being open-minded. And and like you said, yeah, maybe you do love Pinot, but have you tried a Pinot and Shiraz blend? There's plenty of those out there and they, you know, they'll still hit the mark, but they might just add this other facet to your drinking experience. Yeah, or have you tried a Sangiovese? It's similar. You know, there's this Sangiovese that's kind of similar in style, similar light 
but just something slightly different um, than the Pinot that you love. Yeah. You're chair of judges for the New South Wales Wine Show. How does the role that you have impact kind of your community engagement and kind of your your relationship with other New South Wales brands? It's a it's a it's a great role to have, and um, this this will be my second year. So last year was my first year, but um, the New South Wales Wine Industry Association is also doing all this uh, these other um, tastings now that I'm involved with. Um, with an aim, they're, ba- they're based in Sydney, but with an aim of trying to increase the amount of listings of New South Wales wines in Sydney. And I'm involved in that through um, the role at New South Wales Wine Awards. And so it's just great being, it just allows me to get involved in all the wine regions around New South Wales. And um, and not, a, I mean, the great thing about wine shows, aside from tasting a lot of wine and seeing where the wines are at and seeing, you know, what the benchmarks are and is also just meeting a lot of people that are involved in the wine industry but not necessarily winemakers but sommeliers and retailers and um, journalists. And so it's an amazing – I do recommend um, for any young winemaker coming up to try and, like, really try hard to get involved in – wine shows because they you know people can criticize wine shows quite a bit but um it's a great thing to be involved with and it's it's a great way to meet people and it's a great way to importantly meet people in the industry that um you know that are important to your brand or your future brand or um so yeah it's a it's a really good fun exciting and you've obviously judged um at the show for quite a few years now. Um, but it's, a, I mean, you, I'm sure you have an opinion on it, but it's a really great way of getting involved in the industry. Definitely. And a great way to give back to, you know, for your experience, to feedback information, um, to see New South Wales grow. And I think, you know, like anything else, if your if you're region, if your state, if your district's doing well, everybody does well. And the more New South Wales wines we can get, um, out the door, um, the better we all are. Yeah, and I remember having a conversation with you three odd years ago now, and it was after uh, after one of the New South Wales Wine Awards shows, and because um, I just remember having this moment where I was tasting um, a panel of Shiraz, and um, I remember finishing the the um, the class and just thinking, "Holy shit, we make." amazing Shiraz in this state. And then same thing with Riesling and same thing with Chardonnay and obviously same thing with Semyon. And um, after when, when you judge at the New South Wales Wine Awards, you come away going, bloody hell, like we really do make great wine in this state. And I, and I remember the conversation with you because I, I was trying to think of a way that we could share that experience with other sommeliers and other retailers because when you see all these wines in a row, you kind of really get blown away by the the quality. But I don't reckon um, people get that opportunity to see, like you as a sommelier or if you're a retailer, you might see one or two brands from The Hunter that will come in and show you wine or one or or two from Canberra that will come in and show you wine, but you don't get to see 
a full lineup of Shiraz um, from the state or a full lineup of Riesling or Chardonnay or Semillon. And you just, um, you know, when you do get that opportunity, you, you oh, I'm blown away, I'm sure you are, by just how great the quality is. Um, yeah, so I, and I remember trying to organise, you know, I was, I was thinking we need to try and organise, you know, big tasting so people can see what we get to see. Yeah. And and they are now, you know, New South Association is doing those greater tastings of regions and, and um, it is great to see. And like you said, sometimes you just need to see them in a lineup and go through and think, yep, quality, quality. They've all got their point of difference, but the bent, the, the kind of the level is extremely high. Um, I was saying to someone, if you really, if you think about New South Wales as a region, arguably, and it, you'd be... Um, a pretty good debater if, to argue against this, but arguably we produce the best Shiraz in the country. Um, you could um, put your case forward for Chardonnay. You certainly could put your case forward for Semillon. Um, you can put your case forward for Riesling. I mean, Robert Stein, the brand, Jacob just won um, the best Riesling at the National Wine Show. So it really is, um, I, I reckon New South Wales gets a bit of a, tough run when it comes to um, um, its perception of quality wine because, we, you know, I, I would argue we produce the best wine in the country. But um, anyway. <laughs> and you do it so well. I think there's something to be said about an, our, our Aussie sensibilities of it's a bit like, um, how do I put like going growing up in Australia where we want to get to Europe all the time, you know, and we want to travel and we haven't even kind of looked in our own back doorstep and it's not until we go and do a gap year or we travel and then we have a career and then later we go I'd love to go around Australia in a camper van when I'm like you know retired and I think that there's always something that's kind of intoxicating for somewhere else and so I I think I thought that too you know I I wanted to get to other states I wanted to drink other states and 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 then I thought holy crap and it was part of you know your your impact in the wine scene that made me think god New South Wales this is my home this is my local this is what I want to champion first I think Australia is incredible in terms of what we produce but we need to look inward first and see what's around us and you know the last few years have been tough but that's you know, enable people to look around and go, oh, is there a winery? You know, people say to me, is there a winery um, down in Shoalhaven? And, you know, and you're like, yes, there is. So I think that, you know, like you said, it, it does get a bit of a bad rap, but for absolutely no reason because we produce incredible wine. Yeah. I, I, I often think now um, just talking about Australia and Australian wine, I'd love to think if you if we did not have a wine industry in Australia and someone um, came across from somewhere and said let's let's start a wine industry in Australia, I'd love to know what it would look like now, because back back you know many generations ago we were arguably looking to Northern Europe as inspiration as to what to plant, um, and now I reckon it would be that you know we'd be looking at southern europe spain and portugal and southern part of italy and um so it'd be really fascinating if if an industry were to start today what we would be planting i'd be relatively confident that we wouldn't be growing much shiraz or cabernet or riesling and and chardonnay would probably be the domain of tasmania only and pinot noir certainly and um so it'd be really fascinating to see what um 
what is going to happen in the next 20 or 30 years because I suspect there's going to be an enormous amount of change, um, partly driven by um, uh, you guys and partly driven by climate change as well and just consumer preferences. And um, But it's going to be fascinating to see um, what, what Australia looks like in the next two or three generations. Yeah, it's very true. So what does the future hold for Nexpensor Wines? I know you've got an Amphora range that's done incredibly well, but what's happening for you in in the next, you know, few years with your brand? Uh, well, not not much, just because, um, you know, what we were talking about before, just trying to stay pretty focused on the wines that I'm producing and um, just trying to get, like now that um, the pandemic's kind of over, just getting out and talking about wines and and talking about my wines and trying to promote New South Wales wines and um, but not not a huge amount in terms of um, I, I do have the one thing that I've been working on for many many years now and have finally will hopefully release this year or next year is I've I've made a Chardonnay that is a blend of Tumbarumba, Hunter Valley, and Orange and the idea was kind of spawned out of that. You know, the old Penfold's kind of concept of not worrying about um, single regions or vineyards or blocks or clones or anything, but just trying to make the best Chardonnay you possibly can um, or the best wine you possibly can. So I, I thought of this. I've been making wines out of Tumbrumba for a really long time and they're lovely and elegant and um, really finessed, but they – they lack power and concentration in um, in most cases, and so I thought, oh, how can we improve on? You know, how can how can we make a really great Chardonnay out of New South Wales, and then um, uh, the Hunter Valley arguably makes some of the best Chardonnay in the country, and they're concentrated and powerful, but they probably lack some of the finesse that Tumbarumba has, and then Orange produces these lovely fine boned acidic chardonnays and i thought it all kind of makes sense that those three regions could blend together to make a great chardonnay so i've put that in bottle and um and we'll release it at some stage but i i opened a bottle a couple of nights ago and it it looks pretty nervous and tight and um doesn't look quite ready to go so i'm unsure when i'll release that but um but that was something that i've been you know, wanting to do for a really long time, especially just that sometimes, I, you know, it's lovely to think of the romance of single vineyard, single clone, single block, single blah, blah, blah. Um, but I really like the idea of just putting all of that aside and just trying to make a great wine. So that, that was what I tried doing with the Chardonnay. Yeah. Um, I like that you've kind of explained it like that because I think, you know, you already do do that. You do produce great wines from great region that that showcase the area. But sometimes it is just fun to go, like you said, to not think about it too much and go, is this just a great drink? Because we, when we do blind tasting, whatever it means, we go, that's a great Chardonnay. I don't care where it's from or who made it. That's great. And I think that, you know, there's possibilities for that. And and because of your light dry reds and medium dry reds, I think that that will fit into your to your brand, but you still have those other regionality um, examples as well that fit really well. So uh, that sounds really exciting. I'm looking forward to checking it out when it does go to bottle. 
Um, I was thinking about you the other day, actually, because I watched um, Jackass Forever. <laughs> Have you seen the new movie? <laughs> I was watching I'm it and I was thinking. How that- <laughs> no, that was a bit of a left turn, but I was watching it thinking, I guarantee that Nick has watched this. This is probably the only other person that I know that probably would have seen the new Jackass Forever, and it was excruciating to watch. Have you seen it? I actually haven't seen it. No, oh, <laughs> not. It's right up your alley, I, I, Nick. I must have a look at it. I can imagine <laughs> Wolsey or someone would have seen it for sure, but um, <laughs> no, I, I haven't watched it. I'll have to have a look. You've got to do it because I almost sent you a picture of saying, like, this is painful. What do you think? <laughs> painful in a good way. Um, Nick, I ask everybody if you could only drink three boozy drinks for the rest of your life, what would they be and why? Uh, oh, good question. Um I think just going on that theme of, uh, you know, drinking alcohol with food and that important relationship, I reckon beer is an obvious choice and beer would certainly be one of them. Wine is, is an obvious one. And then I reckon sake because if you, um, if you kind of, if you've got in your um, arsenal of three alcoholic drinks, if you've got sake, beer and wine you can pretty much cover most cuisines in the world um so yeah it'll probably be sake beer and wine yeah i like it i mean yeah and sake it just has so much range and depth and kind of there's a sake for every mood so i think that sounds pretty good well nick it's a pleasure hearing what you're up to and having a chat. Uh, your enthusiasm for our great state is infectious and I love that about you. Um, thank you for making the time. Thanks to your wife for moving from Canberra to Sydney to Sydney <laughs> to Canberra and uh, following you wherever your uh, heart leads you. <laughs> what a woman. <laughs> she's, she is. She's an amazing woman. Good honour for <laughs> At least we, we got back to Sydney. We, we were in Canberra for 10 years, but we got back to Sydney. But, um, thank you very much for having me on your show and congratulations. Um, well, firstly, congratulations um, with your um, baby that will be born at some stage in the next couple of months, I'd imagine. Um, and and also your show as well. It's been fantastic and really good to listen to everyone that you've interviewed. And um, so it was, ni- it was nice to catch up. Thanks so much. I think, yeah, two two babies of mine. One's going to be slightly problem more problematic than the other. <laughs> Thank you, Nick. Cheers to you. I hope we get Pleasure. to chat soon. Thank you. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at Over a Glass Pod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.